You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Father, thank you for all the many things that you give us. And bless us now, I pray, as we work and as we study together. Help us in all that we do to grow to be more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for whose name's sake we ask it. Amen. Well, I've been asked to talk uh, to you about the, the, the formation and the nature of Anglicanism. Uh, Anglicanism, the branch of the Christian church uh, to which we belong. Uh, now, what is Anglicanism? Or how do, where does it come from? What does it mean? Where, you know, how do we understand it? This is actually a somewhat controversial question. Uh, it may seem obvious to you, but uh, in fact, it's not. Um, most people today, when they talk about Anglicanism, if they do, think of it, quite rightly, as a Protestant uh, church, as a branch of the Protestant church which came into being in the 16th century at the time of the Reformation. And of course, that is, that is true in a very important sense, uh, that uh, we, we really uh, think of it in those terms and, in, and interpret it in that way. But uh, the, the Church of England, at least, uh, where, from which uh, Anglicanism has spread, uh, traces its history, its origin, back well before then. I mean, at least or nearly a thousand years before uh, the time of the Reformation, and you could go back even further if you wanted to. Um, Christianity appeared uh, in, uh, in Britain, in Great Britain, uh, really uh, around sometime in the second century, probably. I mean, nobody knows who the first Christians were. Um, but uh, by the time the Roman Empire broke up, uh, in the 5th century, uh, Roman Britain, as it then was, uh, was at least officially Christian uh, as part of the Roman Empire at that time. However, uh, the British people who lived there then were not English. You have to get this very clear. You see, there were no English people at that time anywhere, um, and certainly not in Roman Britain. Uh, the, the, the British people uh, of that time uh, were a Celtic people, uh, the ancestors of the modern Welsh, uh, you might uh, say, to, at least to some degree, overlaid with Romans, Latin-speaking Romans, uh, who had gone there from Rome uh, over the centuries, part of the Roman Empire, and so on. When the empires broke up, the Christians who were there, of course, remained there. The church was, was, was still there. And uh, it was engaged in evangelism. Uh, it, was, it evangelized uh, the island of Ireland. Uh, the most famous uh, person, of course, in, in that process uh, being the man that we call Patrick. Uh, today we think of St. Patrick as Irish, but St. Patrick was not Irish. Uh, he was British and he went to Ireland as an evangelist. Um, now, he wasn't the only person, of course, he's become the most famous. Uh, we haven't got time to go into all this in great detail, but basically, um, 
the, the, uh, the island of Ireland was converted to Christianity on the whole through the ministry of people like Patrick and his associates. Uh, and from there they spread into what we now call Scotland. Um, uh, again, a complicated history uh, because the, the original Scots were Irish. That's, if you're not confused by this. Um, <laughs> they went from Ireland to what we now think of as Scotland. Um, and of course, the, 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 the Christian church uh, went with them. And so there was a, 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 a church uh, sort of formed uh, by these people, which we today call the Celtic Church. Now, this is a controversial subject as well uh, as to whether there's, a, there's a, a Celtic church which is different from, from any other kind of Christian church. Um, the answer to that is basically no. Um, uh, it, it was the church which was a spin-off, if you like, uh, from uh, the Christian church in Roman Britain. But it was not English. This is the big thing. Not English. Make that very big in your mind. Uh, you know, different thing altogether. Meanwhile, what was happening back in, uh, in Roman Britain, uh, the, 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 the country which uh, has, has become England, if you look at a map, you'll see that uh, the, it's the same uh, territory, the same country. Um, this territory was invaded, of course, over time uh, by Germanic tribes. People came coming from what is now uh, Holland, uh, northern Germany, Denmark, and so on, and they uh, invaded uh, Roman Britain and established little kingdoms uh, and so on of their own. Uh, what, what happened to the native population is not clear. For a long time it was thought that the natives were driven out, they were pushed uh, further to the west. And there may have been some uh, truth in that, well there was certainly some truth in that. But the discovery recently uh, of DNA, you see the studies of DNA have shown that in fact um, a lot of the population remained in place. It was, it was kind of submerged um, under these uh, invaders, the people that we call Anglo-Saxons. But the Anglo-Saxons did not have uh, a sense of national unity in the way that we understand that today. Uh, they were different tribes. And if you want to understand what Anglo-Saxon society was like, what, what the country was like at that time, it's no good thinking in terms of modern government, uh, modern England or anything like that. Uh, no, um, you're much better off thinking in terms of the SEC. <laughs> no, really. Uh, because what you had were different tribes. You see, you had your Alabama tribe and your Auburn tribe and your uh, uh, LSU tribe and so on. And uh, this was the, their identity. This is how they, they, they saw themselves. And although all of these tribes had their kings, of course, the king was like the coach, uh, you know, and I don't have to tell you. Um, I, I mean, given where we are, um, uh, you know, that what the coach says, everybody else does. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know if you saw, uh, I said so yesterday, the day before, uh, somebody played the basketball game at, uh, in Alabama, did you see, uh, on the television? And all they were talking about was the fact that Coach Saban was there. <laughs> you know, and I thought, 
but he doesn't play basketball. <laughs> but then that wasn't the point, was it? You know, the king was, uh, had arrived, and uh, <laughs> all the cameras weren't focusing on the basketball, they were focusing on him. Saban sort of going like this, and whatever he did, you see, was, was uh, basically what, what everybody was doing. And this is the way the, the Anglo-Saxons operated. Uh, you know, uh, they, were, they were tribal, they followed the coach, or the king, um, and, uh, and basically uh, lived like that. Now, they weren't, and they were pagan. Uh, they weren't officially Christian at all. Christianity came back uh, into the, the territory of Roman Britain, partly from the Irish, the, 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 the British church, you see, which came, came back, started to evangelize from the north and west, and partly from Rome, uh, from a mission from Rome uh, sent by Pope Gregory the Great uh, to establish a church uh, among these Anglo-Saxon people. That was in the year 597, and it is generally regarded as the year in which the Church of England uh, began. Uh, in this sense. We know quite a lot about it because about 120, 30 years later, uh, a monk by the name of Bede, uh, whom some of you will have heard of, um, sat down and wrote the history. You see his, his book, which is still available. You could probably get it at Barnes & Noble. It's, it's, it's widely uh, uh, published. Uh, the Ecclesiastical History of the English People, is what he called it. Bede effectively invented England as a nation. All right? He didn't obviously invent the English people. They were there already. Uh, but, uh, but he put them together, all these tribes that you know, had really didn't think of themselves as having much to do with each other. Um, he coordinated them. He brought them together under the idea of being a single people, a single nation. And the force that, that did this, the force that created this nation, was the Christian church, was the gospel. This was his message. You see that the English nation is uh, a manifestation of the Christian church, and it's the church uh, which holds it together. It's the church which is gives it its identity, which gives it its uh, sense of belonging within the wider world. And Bede said, you see, among other things, if you look back, look at, the look at the history of the world, the English people didn't exist in the time of Jesus. I mean, there were no English people. You don't find them in the Bible at all. Um, the English people had been created, said Bede, by God, that was his way of thinking, um, uh, you know, as part of the evangelization of the world, that they were brought together and made into a nation in this way. Now, of course, when Bede was writing uh, and so on, uh, there was no England, <laughs> as we understand it. I mean, the people he was writing for, um, this, was, this was news to them, <laughs> that, there were, that, that there was such a place, uh, and that it had this, uh, this underlying unity. Uh, but in the course of 200 years after he, after he wrote, he was writing 731, I think, was the year that, he, that his, his, his book was finished. It took another 200 years or so 
before England was, was united politically uh, into, a sing into what is now a single country. And it w this happened, of course, under the auspices uh, of the church. The church was very much uh, in favor of this. The church was very much supportive of this. And the church was the only institution um, that really brought people together, that you could go all over and there was one church, there was one uh, organization, and, and everybody belonged to it. This was known at the time uh, in Latin as the Ecclesia Anglicana, which you could translate as Anglican Church, but that would be misleading. Uh, it would be better to say uh, it was the Church of the English People, or the English Church, you see, at this time. Nevertheless, it was important because it was the church which gave legitimacy to the nation. And you saw this, or you see this, uh, in uh, the, the way in which the kings were uh, not so much chosen, but uh, were le legitimized in the rite of coronation. Now, we're going to have a coronation, of course, in the next few months, and I know you'll all be glued to the TV to watch it. Uh, well, no, that's fine. Um, but remember, when you do, that this is an intensely religious ceremony. All right? That's, that's, the, that's the key. I don't know how many of you watched the Queen's funeral a few months ago, but if you did, one of the most interesting moments uh, at the end, at the very end, before as her coffin was being laid down uh, below the floor in St. George's Chapel in Windsor, I don't know if you noticed that uh, the people standing around, the, the, the acolytes and various people, removed the crown from the coffin and put it on the altar, giving it back to the church because the crown belongs to the church. You see, uh, the queen got it from the church, and when she dies, she hands it back to the church. And the church will give it to her successor, legitimizing him on his throne. Of course, he can be king without the coronation, but somehow that's kind of irregular. You see what I mean? People don't, don't really like that. Uh, you sort of say, well, there's got to be a coronation. The coronation is the legitimizing of the ruler by the church, all right? And this you have to bear in mind. Um, it's still true today, even though a lot of people don't realize it. But it's very important to understand the history of Anglicanism, uh, to remember this intimate connection uh, between the throne and the altar. <laughs> between the church and the, what we might call today the state. You see, they are connected in this way. Well, from that time onwards, of course, down to the 16th century and the Reformation, these two things went together. To be a member of the English church was to be a subject of the King of England. The extent of the English church was the extent of the lands ruled by the King of England. Uh, you see, the, the, these two things were coterminous. Uh, and uh, uh, the, you can't really separate them out and decide which is one and which is the other. But this Anglican church, this English church, was also connected to Rome. It was part of the wider Catholic church 
uh, of Western Europe. And the Pope was head of the church uh, in, in that respect. And the Pope, of course, claimed the right uh, to legitimize the kings. I mean, it wasn't just the church that was, you know, when you say the church legitimized in the coronation, what does that mean? It meant that uh, the head of the church, in other words, the pope, uh, was the one who had the final say in these things. Uh, now, this was called into question in the 14th century uh, by a man called John Wycliffe. And John Wycliffe is probably the only person from the pre-Reformation era uh, in England who is still regarded today as some kind of Anglican. Um, of course, there were plenty of people in the uh, pre-Reformation church uh, who were famous in different ways. Um, there was, for example, a man called Boniface, of whom you've probably never heard. Um, well, you may have heard of Boniface uh, in that name, possible, uh, but you certainly wouldn't have heard of him, his English name. Boniface was the name he, he, he took when he was ordained, but the name that he, that he was baptized with, his, his, his original name, was Winfrith, and you've certainly never heard of that. Um, but Winfrith uh, was an Englishman who grew up and he became a missionary to Germany, and the Christianization of Germany was largely his work, and he is regarded today as the patron saint of the Germans, St. Boniface, you see. Um, so he's well known to the Germans, and that's where, where you may have heard of him. Um, but he was English. Um, and then you have uh, people like uh, Anselm of Canterbury, the Archbishop of Canterbury, back in the days when archbishops were still theologians, and he was one of the great, the well, really, I mean, he was one of the great theologians uh, of, of, of the church of all time. Uh, and again, you, you know, very famous. Uh, but although he was Archbishop of Canterbury, he wasn't English. Uh, he was, I suppose we would have to say, some kind of Italian. Um, uh, well, it's hard to say because the boundaries are different, you see, but he, he, he basically was born in the Alps. Uh, and he spent a lot of his time in Normandy, and it's because of the Norman conquest that he ended up in England as Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, but probably never spoke a word of English. So do you count him uh, as Anglican or not? Well, uh, well, he was Archbishop of Canterbury, so you can't deny it. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, a rather strange bird to be in that particular place, you see, at that time. So it's difficult to sort of label people of, uh, of that era in, in, in this particular way. But John Wycliffe was definitely English. Um, he lived in the 14th century. Uh, he was uh, a lecturer in the University of Oxford, um, which had been, was, was a, a going concern at that time. Um, and he criticized the church of his day, the Roman church, the papacy, and so on. Um, why? Well, uh, things were going wrong uh, in, in the society of that time. Uh, Wycliffe was a student in Oxford um, 
at the time of the of the Black Plague, of the of the, the Black Death, the Great Plague. Um, and during the Black Plague, the Black Death in the, the Plague time, this is 1347, 48, 49, 50, one third of the Engli of the population died. I mean, it's a huge number. And of course, we can appreciate this now better than would have been possible, say, five years ago, because we've just been through a pandemic. Now, the pandemic that we've been through <coughs> is nothing compared to the Black Death. I mean, it wouldn't be true to say that one third of the American population died uh, in the COVID pandemic. But still, enough people did die, and there's been enough sort of uh, upheaval as a result that it has left a, 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 a big mark um, uh, on, on the country, on the, on, on the mindset. People, you know, the pandemic has changed things, uh, has changed the way people think. So if that's possible in our time uh, and recently, imagine what it was like in the Middle Ages, you see, when suddenly every third person or so it seemed disappeared, uh, just not there anymore. And Wycliffe was about 19, 20 years old when this was happening. Uh, he was a student uh, in <coughs> Oxford. And of course, the question arose, we have been praying, the church has been praying for years uh, for this, the health and salvation of the nation. And this is what we get. You see, the Black Death. Um, what's gone wrong? The belief grew that God was punishing the nation because of its sins. What were the sins? Well, uh, there's always a tendency to think that those who, who die are the sinners, of course. <laughs> you know, this is, this is not really true, but this is the way people think. And in the 14th century, at the time of the Black Death, the, 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 the percentage of clergy who died was much higher than the percentage of, of the, the general population. So if one-third of the population died, at least half, perhaps more than half, of the clergy died. Now, the reason for that, of course, is that the clergy ministered to the sick, and the, the plague was very contagious. So, of course, you were going to catch it. And back then, nobody understood this. You see, people didn't know what caused disease or anything like that, so they didn't have any idea. But the clergy died in large numbers. The church was very ser seriously affected. And so the, the people like Wycliffe began to think, well, this must mean there's something wrong with the church. You see, something's gone wrong. And of course, it wasn't difficult to find out what had gone wrong because a generation before, uh, the King of France uh, had in fact captured the Pope, uh, just arrest, you know, captured him, and set him up in the south of France in a place called Avignon. So the Pope was not actually living in Rome at that time. You see, he was Bishop of Rome, he was supposed to be in Rome, but he wasn't. And so that's the first thing. So why isn't the Pope where he's supposed to be, you see. Um, well, because the church isn't, isn't operating properly, you see. Uh, should we have a pope at all? Um, where's the Bible in all of this, 
you see, the, 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 you look at the Bible, the New Testament, there's no Pope in the Bible. What's going on here? You know, so people begin to question, and Wycliffe is one of the people who starts to question these things. Now, if Wycliffe had stayed in the university, probably nobody would have noticed or cared. I mean, even today, as you know, uh, I mean, u universities are basically open-plan, insane asylums, and, uh, you know, when, well, it's true, isn't it? I mean, you hear some Harvard professor has just come up with something or other, and you think, oh, yeah, well, <laughs> what else do you expect? Um, you know, <laughs> keep them there, don't let them loose uh, on, on, the no on the ordinary population and everything will be fine. Um, and, and Wycliffe might have got away with that if that's what he'd done. Because remember, he would have lectured in the classroom in, lat in Latin uh, and nobody would have understood a word he was saying, so that's fine, you know. Well, just like today. I mean, it's true. You go to a university, listen to a lecture and so on. I mean, it might be in English, but it might as well be in Latin. And uh, you, you sort of listen to that and think, well, well, okay, and walk away and, you know, <laughs> and never the, go back. Um, but Wycliffe didn't. Wycliffe went out in the streets and he preached in English to ordinary people. And this was a very shocking thing to do, of course, at that time, because uh, here was somebody who represented, the, you know, the, the intellectual establishment, um, who was closely connected with the, with the king and the court and so on uh, in different ways, um, and, and obviously the church and all the rest of it, breaking rank. You see, he's, he's not sort of just staying within those circles, uh, but, but getting out and, and talking to ordinary people. And of course, ordinary people start to think, well, something really must be wrong. And of course, one of the things that resulted from this that Wycliffe didn't foresee, he didn't know, was that there was a peasant's revolt. The peasants revolted because they felt that the society was falling apart somehow. Uh, you know, that the people who should be running it weren't doing it properly. Um, and it was sort of a kind of conspiracy theory sort of going on. Well, anyhow, um, one of the things that Wycliffe sponsored uh, was translation of the Bible into English or into what he thought was English. Um, and again, this, this is not as straightforward as you might think. Um, there's a book uh, that was ri actually written in English uh, in Wycliffe's time, uh, and its title is The Againbite of Inwit. Now, you can't deny that this is English the again bite of inwit. But none of you understands what that is. Because although these are so-called English words, it's not the English that we speak today. What was this person? We don't know who, who it was who, who, who wrote this book. Um, what was he trying to do? Well, he was trying to translate, you see, from, from Latin, uh, French, and so on, these languages, into what he thought was English, and making it up as he went along. So again, by, if you go back, it, you see, uh, and again is re, 
and to the bite is, is like morsel, you know, uh, 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 something that you eat. So again, bite is remorse, and in wit is conscience. Now, if I called it the remorse of conscience, you would understand what it was, you see. Uh, but these are Latin words taken into English, you see what I mean? So translating the Bible into English was not as straightforward a thing as you might think, because the English language at that time did not have the, the words that were necessary, uh, you know, to convey the concepts. And so if you, invent, if you make it up, like with the again bite of inwit, you can make it up, but nobody understands what you're saying, you see? And if you say, well, that's English, you say, well, not the kind of English I speak, um, you see, and, and you go away thinking, well, you don't know, you see, anymore. And Wycliffe suffered from this, you see, or, or the, uh, the, the, the followers of Wycliffe. Um, their intentions were good in one way, uh, in one way uh, but uh, they were pioneers at, in something that w was impossible to, um, uh, to, to fulfill, you see, to, to bring to a, a positive conclusion at that particular time in that particular way. Also, of course, all the things that they did, all the Bibles that they did, they had to write out by hand because there was no printing at that time. So uh, it was hand copied. And the interesting thing is that the popularity of Wycliffe can be gauged by the fact that there are still today over 250 copies of his Bibles, of the Wycliffeite Bibles, which have survived in manuscript. And that's an enormous number. Because if you look at anything else, you know, if you look at, say, Homer's Iliad or something like that, uh, there's only about five copies or something that have survived in the whole of Western Europe. So for 250 copies to have survived, uh, I mean, that's, that's saying something. That's a, that's a, that's a good sign, uh, or an interesting sign at least. Well, anyhow, Wycliffe's followers uh, see, uh, revolted against the establishment, against the church at the time. They were suppressed. They were suppressed because the upper class didn't want a peasant's revolt, so they did that. And of course, the official church didn't want to be disturbed either. Uh, so uh, the Wycliffeites, uh, the, the followers were called Lollards. Lollard is, a, is an old English word uh, meaning to babble, uh, or mumble, or something like that. Uh, and these people uh, went underground. They survived into the, some of them survived into the 16th century uh, and merged into the Reformation when, when the Reformation occurred, but basically they were suppressed and it was made illegal to translate the Bible into English. That was illegal. Um, and only in England. Uh, they, the church also insisted that you could not preach in a church nobody was allowed to preach unless they got a license. You had to have a license, which was a way of trying to control them, you see, because of course if you were preaching the wrong thing uh, you could have your license taken away. So that was, and this is still true in the Anglican world today. I mean the people who, who preach here in the Church of the Advent have a license from the bishop. If they don't have a license they're not supposed to preach. 
You might not realize that, but it's true. Um, and so this this system, this 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 pattern has has uh, uh, persisted to the present time. There was another rule, unfortunately, never put into practice, um, which said that anyone who preached uh, uh, in a way that was incomprehensible uh, should be burnt at the stake. <laughs> now, of course, I know we'd all love that one to be put in. You know, why didn't they do that? Um, but that that hasn't happened, unfortunately. You know, so we're still stuck with that. Um, but. Uh, but this was what was going on in the early 15th century, you see, a hundred years before Martin Luther. But then along comes Martin Luther, nothing to do with England, of course, um, and uh, starts a reformation in Germany. All right? The Pope goes around Europe and asks the various kings, you know, France, Spain, etc., I need help. You've got to help me deal with this Martin Luther guy. The only king who actually responded to this was Henry VIII of England, who, believe it or not, yes, who wrote a book uh, denouncing Martin Luther. Um, this book is, is still available. I mean, you can buy it. You can read it today. It's in our library at Samford, if you're that interested. Um, and you can, you can see it. And Henry was given a title uh, as a reward for having written this book. This title was Defender of the Faith. The present king, of course, still carries this title, Defender of the Faith, the irony being that the faith he is supposed to defend is the one that Henry VIII was attacking. But that's a minor detail, all right? <laughs> uh, the, title, uh, the title remains the same. Henry VIII and Martin Luther did not hit it off at all. Why not? Well, I suppose we'd have to say they were two men with big egos, and two men with big egos generally don't hit it off very well, as we know. All right? Um, as far as uh, Henry was concerned, Luther was a stinking monk, you know, who was, who was getting above his station. And as far as Luther was concerned, uh, Henry was just uh, an ignoramus who thought that because he was king, he knew everything. Um, and so they kind of you know, didn't, didn't really get along with each other very well. And it's important that we understand this because there was no way that Henry VIII was ever going to accept Martin Luther or his Reformation. All right? He wasn't interested in that. In fact, Henry VIII would never have gone anywhere near uh, Protestantism or Reformation or anything of this kind if it hadn't been for his own marital difficulties. Uh, as we know, you see, he, uh, his wife, uh, Catherine of Aragon, uh, had failed to produce a male heir. And Henry felt he needed this in order to guarantee his succession. Now again, you have to try to appreciate the importance of this because the stability of the country and the legitimacy of Henry's rule ultimately depended on who the successor would be. And if there was no credible successor in sight, then of course, when Henry died, what would happen? Would the country fall apart? Maybe. 
you see, no, nobody really could tell uh, what was going to happen. And um, you, you need to have a system whereby uh, a successor is in place, <coughs> you see, somehow or other. So this, this becomes the, the, the key thing for Henry. I mean, how can you do this? Henry believed uh, that his marriage had gone uh, sour uh, because uh, he had married his brother's widow. You see, Catherine was actually originally uh, married to Henry's older brother, Arthur, who died of tuberculosis. The next thing, of course, when that happened, she was married to Henry which was against the rule of the church, the law of the church at that time. But the Pope had granted a dispensation to allow this to happen in exceptional circumstances. The result, well, not the result, but what happened was that Catherine had a number of miscarriages. I forget how many, something like eight or something like that. Um, but she had a daughter, a daughter Mary, who survived, just one daughter. But the question was, could Mary rule England? Could she become queen in her own right? And this was not clear at that time. The only time this, something like this had ever happened before was back in the 12th century when King Henry I had died uh, leaving a daughter, Matilda, who claimed to be queen. But the nobility, the barons at the time, rejected Matilda because she was a woman. Not because they were anti-feminist or anything like that, but because the king or the ruler had to be commander-in-chief of the army, and a, a woman was not capable of doing that, at least not at that time. It wasn't accepted, you see. So she was no good for this from this point of view. So they had to get a cousin, uh, a man called Stephen, and made him king instead. Well, to make a long story short, Stephen's son and heir died. Um, and the result wa was that although Matilda could never become queen, her son, who uh, was accepted as Stephen's heir, became King Henry II. So you have a progression from Henry I through Matilda to Henry II, but Matilda is not actually a ruler herself. All right? Could this happen again in the 16th century? Or would Mary be, be queen in her own right? If she was queen in her own right, who would she marry? Would her husband be made king? Well, of course, that wasn't clear either. <laughs> you see, all these questions had never been asked before, and nobody really knew what to do, and Henry didn't want to take the risk. So Henry came up with the idea that he wanted his marriage annulled. Not, he never got divorced. You see, it's a myth that say that Henry got divorced. No. Henry wanted his marriage annulled. What's the difference between annulment and divorce? Annulment is the declaration that the marriage never took place. Divorce is the acceptance that there was a legitimate marriage, but it has been broken. All right? For Henry to get an annulment, this would make Mary, his daughter, illegitimate, because there had never been a marriage, supposedly. Well, this was Henry's big idea, you see. 
So he floats this with the Pope in Rome. Um, you know, can I have an annulment because, because I should never have got the dispensation in the first place? Well, the Pope is in a bind. First of all, because one of his predecessors had given the dispensation to Henry to marry uh, Catherine in the first place. So he would basically be cancelling out something that a previous pope had done. And if you believe that the pope is infallible, that's not an easy thing to do. You know, how do you do that? But even more important was that the pope was actually in jail at this time. Um, well, he was under house arrest. Uh, why? Because he hadn't been dealing with Luther and the German emperor, Charles V, um, went to Rome, invaded Rome, arrested the Pope and threw him in jail and said, until you sort the church out, you know, you're not getting out. Um, and uh, you might think, well, what's that got to do with, with Henry VIII? Well, it turns out, of course, that the German emperor was in fact Spanish. Um, no, yeah, well, they get everywhere, you know. Um, and, uh, and he was Catherine, that's Henry's wife's nephew, would you believe? Um, and he wasn't squeamish about, about what to do with, with awkward women because, uh, no, because he had inherited his throne as king of Spain from his grandfather who was the Ferdinand of uh, Ferdinand and Isabella who sent Christopher Columbus to the New World. And they had, uh, Ferdinand and Isabella had only two daughters. They had a daughter, Juana and, and Catherine, who married Henry VIII. Well, Juana should have become Queen of Spain, but the Spanish nobility didn't want her as Queen of Spain any more than the English nobility wanted a woman as Queen of England. Uh, so what happened? Uh, well, they declared Juana mentally insane, which she wasn't, of course, and locked her up in a convent where she lived for about 50 years. Mm. I mean, so this is what Charles had done to his mother. So, you know, it wasn't that, that he was sentimental about these things uh, or anything like that. But Catherine, his aunt, said, you've got family honor. Uh, you've got to support me against Henry VIII. And so Charles told the Pope, there's no way you can give an annulment to this because this is my aunt you're talking about. And, uh, you know, if you grant the annulment, um, this, is, this, this will harm my family reputation. You know, uh, we, we can't do this. Okay? She can't be sent away like this. So there was no way the Pope was going to grant an annulment. So what does Henry do? He calls the Parliament of England together and basically... Um, puts pressure on the church and eventually breaks with Rome when he realizes he can't get his way. And that's the beginning of the independent Church of England. And we've got to stop there, uh, but we'll come back next week for the next thrilling installment uh, of, this, of this story, okay? Thanks for your patience. We'll see you soon. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.